Good morning. It is great to be with you and continuing our new series on Kingdom Roots, the Sermon on the Mount. About six months ago, I really felt the Holy Spirit give me a nudge about Matthew chapters five to seven and what we call the Sermon on the Mount to study it in greater detail as a means to discipleship. And so since November, I have been amassing books on the subject. I thought that I'd be looking at it towards the end of this year. But then our leadership team decided to look at it as our next series as we come out of lockdown, but also in view of the prophetic that we've had about building roots. So here we are. So I've really just started my studies, but I have been aided and abetted, if I can use that term this morning, by three, principally three books. Firstly, Daryl Johnson's book on the Beatitudes. Um, if you want to go into a bit more study, there's John Stott book on the Sermon on the Mount. And then an even bigger tome, uh, R.T. Kendall's book. And I'm reading these studying these and and it is great to look at. So in starting this morning I'll be looking at Matthew 5 verses 1 to 12, uh, the Beatitudes. But I just wanted to start by making a point that I thought Dan uh, covered last week that was excellent in the respect that Jesus' ministry in the early chapters of Matthew echo the exodus of the people of Israel. So in chapter 2, Jesus and his family came out of Egypt. Chapter 3, Jesus is baptised, going through the waters. And then Jesus spends 40 days in the desert, echoing the 40 years that the Israelites spent in the desert. And here we are in chapter 5, we have Jesus going up on a mountainside and giving the law. But it's not a law that says, thou shalt not. Here, Jesus is revealing the heart of God, the fulfilment of what the law was intended to bring. So Jesus goes up on a mountainside and his disciples come to him. And I would just like to emphasise that as I start. His disciples come to him. In the Old Testament, Exodus 19 onwards, Moses went up Mount Sinai alone and received the Ten Commandments and then went down to deliver the law to the people. Only a very limited number of people could come up on the mountain. In fact, the people themselves were prevented from going up onto the mountain. But here we have Jesus in the New Testament going up on the mountainside, calling his disciples to him. To be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, we have to come to him to make an effort, to be intentional, to learn, to listen, to spend time in his presence and to change. Some commentators take the view that Jesus was teaching his 12 disciples, but it's clear that the the crowds could listen in. Matthew 7.28 tells us that the crowds were amazed at his teaching. All were welcome. So somehow in writing this account, Matthew wants us, you and I, to be invited in 
too. You're welcome to go upon the mountainside to engage with teach Jesus teaching here. Amy Jill Levine encourages us to this, to follow him into the sermon, down the mountain and out into the world and step into the kingdom of God. And my prayer is that today, today together, we will do that. So let's read the text. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So what I'd like to do today is really just to bring out four points about the Beatitudes in general, how they are connected. And then next week, Andy Wright will be looking at the Beatitudes themselves. This is a whistle-stop tour, but please don't stop returning to these Beatitudes again and again. Let them capture your heart, draw you into a journey, into the very heart of God and the kingdom of heaven. The thing is that these Beatitudes are upside down. When you first look at them, they seem impossible or unattainable. They seem to make no sense. Blessed are those who mourn. Really, what is that all about? But the more you read them, the more you study them, you realise that it is our world that is upside down. Our culture and the attributes that the world values are completely the wrong way up. And these Beatitudes turn everything the right way up. In God's kingdom, they make perfect sense. These are the characteristics that God loves and that his people are to reflect. Just to say the word Beatitude in our English is our English translation taken from the Latin meaning blessed are. And of course, Jesus never used the term Sermon on the Mount. It was St. Augustine, roughly about four in the fourth century, that gave it that title and it stuck thereafter. So enough preamble. My first point. And the first point is that this Sermon on the Mount has to be understood in the context of the good news or gospel declared by Jesus. To separate this teaching from the gospel 
this teaching becomes either an unattainable standard or it makes very little sense. I take this from Daryl Johnson's study on the Beatitudes. This sermon or the Beatitudes was given just after Jesus declared his gospel. So what was Jesus' gospel? Matthew 4 verse 17 says that from, from that time on, Jesus declared, oh, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Mark 1 verse 14 to 15 gives us a little bit more detail. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. This is Jesus, the first evangelist. And this is the good news, the gospel according to Jesus. The time has come. God has broken into our world and is establishing his kingdom, a new kingdom. It's not like the Romans or the Persians or the Greeks. It's a new kingdom. It's God's kingdom, God's way of doing things. And I find it amazing that we are looking at this scripture, having spent the last few months in the book of Daniel. Daniel's dreams foretold this time, this moment. You remember the dream about the statue in chapter 2 or the four beasts in chapter 7? That there would come a time in history when God would break into the world and God will establish his kingdom. And here we are looking at this text that was 500 years after the death of Daniel. Jesus is proclaiming the time is now. The kingdom of God is near. It's at hand, or as R.T. Kendall puts it, it's before their very eyes. Jesus is declaring the fulfilment of Daniel's dreams, and Jesus calls those listening to respond to that great fact. He calls them to repent and to believe it, to change their mind, to change their thinking, to turn around, to believe that in Jesus God was breaking into the world to establish his kingdom and to put their trust in that fact. This gospel is good news. It's good news because as we turn to God, we are reconciled back to him into a right relationship with God. All of our sins have been forgiven that we can know God walking with us throughout the difficulties of life, especially at this time of COVID. God walking with us, we can call out to him and call upon him at any time. He loves us. And ultimately, we will spend eternity with God. How great is this good news? So Jesus delivers this sermon on the mount to his disciples who have repented, changed their minds, believe in God, that believe that God has broken into the world. Those that want to follow after him. And it is this good news, this law of the heart, this sermon on the mount that then flows out from this.
Why is that important? Because these Beatitudes are what happens when the gospel takes hold of our lives. Like yeast in dough, it works through every part of our heart and life as we allow God and allow the Spirit of God to change us and transform us. So to my second point, these Beatitudes speak of a new humanity, a gospelized people, a Beatitude people, the people that reflect God's character, a people where the good news of Jesus is changing them from the inside out. It's called a revaluation of values or even a transvaluation of values. It's what the Apostle Paul calls being born again. It's what we acknowledge as being filled with the Holy Spirit. So a revaluation of values. The gospel causes us to question what is important to us, to change our priorities. What matters to us becomes what matters to him. A transvaluation of values is where our values are turned upside down. The values that the world seeks as weak or to be despised like gentleness and mercy are in fact the most valuable to God. The values that we take hold of through these Beatitudes by the Spirit of God turn our own values upside down or our values are turned right side up. You know, for me, when I got married, my dad gave a speech, it's about 30 years ago now, at our wedding. And one of the things that he said, and it sounds funny to say it, but he said, I was not the son that he raised. I know it sounds funny, but it wasn't that somehow I was, or I am, an imposter. But I'd become a Christian nine years earlier, when I was about 16. And that had so shaped me that he was acknowledging that who I had become, that he felt was not down to him. I was different. I was changed as the gospel had taken hold of me. Now, that's a start of a journey. I don't profess to be anywhere near perfect. But the point is, he could see the difference. The gospel changes us. And it continues to challenge us and change us as we allow God into our lives to lead and guide us. So when the gospel touches a life, these beatitudes are what happens to all that surrender their lives to Jesus. R.W. Stott puts it like this. These are not eight separate and distinct groups of disciples, some of whom are meek, while others are merciful, and yet others are called upon to endure persecution. They are rather eight qualities of the same group who are at one and the same time are meek and merciful, poor in spirit and pure in heart, 
mourning and hungry, peacemakers and persecuted. The first seven of these Beatitudes are character traits of all who follow Jesus. And the eighth Beatitude is what happens to those people who display God's character. They get in trouble for it. This is a gospelized people, a Beatitude people. And it all starts when you allow the gospel to take hold of your life. These Beatitudes are who you and I are called to be. So to my third point, these Beatitudes, they tell us about the kingdom of God. They tell us about God's character and who he wants us to become. And it also tells us about what the kingdom of heaven is all about. So somehow these character traits are connected to each other as we submit our lives to Jesus. Some scholars believe there is an order to these Beatitudes. They describe it like a ladder that begins in poverty of spirit. This is the first step. As we come before God in true repentance, in poverty of spirit, we see our sins and recognise our own complete inability to bargain with God. King David understood it when he wrote Psalm 51. He said this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions, wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, only you, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. He understands what it is to mean uh, to be, uh, to have uh, no bargaining power with God. That is a poverty of spirit. We cannot earn God's favour. And yet he has done it all. We can never repay the debt paid by Jesus on our behalf to redeem us back to God. And that poverty of spirit is the start of these character traits. Out of our poverty of spirit, to mourn is to see the sin within our own hearts and the sin that pervades the world and the effects of it. Jesus wept over the sin he saw in Jerusalem. And often, as we see the news, our hearts cry out to God as we hear of some disaster or as we see what is even going on in India at the moment with their difficulties with this pandemic. The mourning that we see leads to meekness or what we would call gentleness, a humility before God and others that will somehow cause us 
to hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, to do things God's way, a desire from the heart to seek after God and his will. And those that hunger and thirst after God's righteousness extend mercy because they understand how God's mercy has been extended to them. They become pure in heart, seeking to bring God's peace. So I am informed that the best way to look at these Beatitudes is to look at the others because they each inform on the other. So as we look at these, we see that the blessings of the Beatitudes is not just for the future, but it is for us today. Beatitudes 1 and 8 have the same blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit and blessed are the persecuted because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It doesn't say blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs will be the kingdom of heaven, but theirs is the kingdom of heaven today. As we acknowledge our need for God, acknowledge our sin before him and believe his word, we receive his love. We receive his forgiveness, his love and his life today. Each day, these blessings of the kingdom of heaven are there for us. But we see that these Beatitudes tell us about the kingdom of heaven it's all about being comforted, about inheriting the earth. It's about being in, in right relationship with God. It's about receiving mercy. And it's about seeing God. How amazing is that? And also being called, being who we are called to be, sons of God. And lastly, if we live like this, Unfortunately, I say unfortunately, it will get us into trouble. But finally, my last point is that these qualities are not natural qualities. I hope that frees you from trying to somehow engender meekness and purity of heart. Naturally speaking, we cannot produce these character traits. And let's face it, who wants to mourn? But in terms of mercy, one only has to look at the way sees uh, the uh, death of George Floyd in the States, the celebrations on the streets about finally uh, the black community receiving justice. To me, that speaks volumes. I'm not commenting on what the chap did or what he deserves or what he doesn't deserve. My comment is that the world loves justice. When we are wronged, our natural response is justice. But these beatitudes show us God's character. My point is that these characteristics are not natural. It's only by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit can we live and become a people that reflect these character traits. R.T. Kendall describes this text as the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, because without the Holy Spirit moving in our hearts, we simply cannot attain these 
values. Without us asking God to fill us, to lead us, these Beatitudes become a standard that we simply cannot attain to. However, these character traits are the surest sign that the kingdom of God has broken into your life and mine when they are reflected to the world around us. How amazing is that? In closing, I'd like to return to where we started. The good news. Jesus came declaring, the time is now. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And this is the same gospel that we believe in today, that Jesus is God's son and that through Jesus, the kingdom of God has broken into our world. And for all who believe, all who put their trust in Jesus, they will be reconciled to God, will have their sins forgiven. The slate wiped clean. By God's Holy Spirit, they will know the presence of God, God walking with them throughout their lives today. What amazing news this is. This is the good news, the gospel of Jesus. So today, if you feel that pull on your heart of God drawing you into his presence, stop, respond, ask him to forgive you and to for living life your own way. Invite him in today. Allow him to draw you into that journey, a life with him by his Holy Spirit. Alternatively, if you feel that you've taken your life back and need to come before him afresh, do it today. Thank you.